Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have Dr. Jonathan Sarfati on. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarf- Sarfati is a young earth creationist. He works for Creation Ministries International. Uh, some interesting things about Dr. Sarfati. He is a New Zealand national chess champion. Uh, he went to the Olympics for chess. Uh, he's also known for playing uh, 12 games of chess at the same time, wait for it, blindfolded. That's right, blindfolded. Uh, his best was 11 out of 11. Uh, that's right, he beat 11 different people at the same time, blindfolded. I don't even have any idea how that's even possible, but (laughs) he's incredibly brilliant. And we're going to have him on today to talk about his book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth. It is a book that is in response to The Greatest Show on Earth uh, by, by Richard Dawkins. So it is my pleasure to welcome... Uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thank you for having me here. So, uh, friends, today, again, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, Dr. John's book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, but really his book is in response to a Richard Dawkins book, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. So before we really get down and dirty on, on Dr. John's book, who is Richard Dawkins? Uh, Richard Dawkins is, uh, well, at least was until recently, uh, a professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University and extremely well known for his uh, vociferous atheism and uh, defense of Darwinian evolution. Right, right. And if any of you friends have heard Richard Dawkins in any of his debates, although he doesn't really do a lot of debates, um, but when he speaks, he's he's pretty obnoxious. I mean, he really, he'll, he'll sling a lot of insults. And so he really gets under your skin. Um, this book that he wrote, the greatest show on earth, what was that all about? Well, it's interesting that this is on the Darwin bicentennial, uh, 2009. And he admitted that his previous works, uh, had presupposed evolution to be true and didn't really provide the evidence for us. So this was trying to provide actual evidence that evolution is true and lay it all out for the, in time for the Darwin Bicentennial, and um, which is why I wrote my book, to try to refute the best arguments that evolutionists have for their position. I mean, he usually doesn't address most of the best creationist arguments. In fact, misrepresents the arguments quite badly, but we were going to uh, determine to um, address um, everything he said, every claim he made. Right, right. And and I noticed that he spent a lot of time setting up straw men and knocking them down. Oh, definitely. And one of the worst is this view. Well, he does a bit of a bait and switch or the, or the fallacy of equivocation where he used the same word in different senses. Like he said, evolution is a change of gene frequency over time. But of course, no creationist denies that gene frequencies change over time. The big claim of evolution is everything came from a single-celled creature which itself evolved from a primordial soup, the goo to you, the other zoo picture is what we're really in dispute at. And then he goes on to say that 40% of Americans deny evolution, uh, but if evolution is defined as change of gene frequency, then 
I can I, I can't even think of, of um, uh, forty in a million who would deny that gene frequencies change. If you have doing bait and switch, the forty percent deny the the big picture of all of us coming from the uh, rearranged pond scum. That's what what's being denied. <clears throat> right, right. And so, okay. Well, I just want to jump into so many things in your book. Sure. And, and excellent book, by the way. I've I've been devouring it, uh, friends. I can't really endorse this book enough. It's been one of the most uh, uh, exciting creation books I've read in a long time. And uh, Dr. John is so articulate. He's got such a great way of, of putting things. So yeah, and, and he doesn't, it's something that is uh, middle shelf. You can read it, you can understand it, but it is not at the lowest layman level. It's not just something you can pick up and breeze through. It, it really provokes a lot of thought. And um, yeah, I, I really, I can't endorse it enough. Awesome book. So, um, okay, in the book, chapter two, you yeah. mentioned, you, you go into a section where you talk about species and kind. Yeah. And for a lot of young earth creationists that are new to this subject, it's so hard to define the difference between a species and a kind, and you offer some suggestions, and I and I haven't really heard these anywhere else. What what are those? Well, basically, because uh, the Bible talks about things reproducing after their kinds, that should be a clue of how the kinds should be defined. Is that things that can interbreed with each other, even if they can't, um, for whatever reason nowadays, produce a fertile offspring, as long as they have some sort of hybridization ability, it would imply they came from the same created kind of creature. Uh, for instance, um, lions and tigers can interbreed. They produce ligers and tigons, and ligers can be fertile. So that um, shows that lions and tigers are the same kind of creature, even though uh, they have different names now. They can still interbreed with each other. And the, the domestic dogs are clearly one kind of creature, which also seems to be part of the wolf kind in general, uh, again, because of the way that we can interbreed these uh, creatures. So it's much bigger than the modern classification of biological species. I mean, too many things. Um, that people want to make new names for things. We've got too many species, but the kind would have many different, would include quite a number of different so-called species in it. Okay, interesting. And so we have two of every kind that steps off the ark. Yeah. How did we end up with so many different uh, animals in general, where we get all this confusion with species. Well, that's just something that, that even the creationists before Darwin actually worked out. There must have been something which we would now call speciation to explain this variation. So, and what the modern creationists would do with the knowledge of genetics to say that God pre-programmed lots of genetic var var variation in these uh, created kinds, so that the subsequent generations could produce lots of varieties and adapt to different variation, different environments. Um, but evolution is meant to be a claim that uh, new information writes itself, that we go from a primordial soup with no information to the simplest cell, which has, say, 600 kilobytes of information. And we as humans have about three gigabytes of information in each of our cells. So it's an uphill process, but the variation within the kind is sorting out uh, information that was already pre-programmed into these kinds 
um, and in fact quite a lot of losses of information, um, like in the case Dawkins brings up of flying fish in caves. I believe that did come from a sighted fish on the surface, and in a cave it's lost the ability to see, but it's not a big deal because no one else can see either if it's pitch black. <laughs> right, right, and, and and so and that kind of defines the difference between uh, so-called micro evolution, mm. which it's not really evolution; it's really variation within a kind, and and macro evolution, where supposedly uh, these animals will become a whole new kind of animal, where there's an increase of of information and complexity. Now, going back and to Richard Dawkins, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go that's ahead. why I would actually discourage the, the distinction of micro and macro, because that actually puts it as a, as a case of small versus large. And then in the mind of people, uh, millions of years, a small change can add up to one big change. But the point is, yeah. it's a case of whether it's uphill or downhill as far as the genetic information is concerned. So um, I'd say loss of sight is quite a big change, but it's still a downhill change. Uh, and in fact, what we don't see is even small amounts of uphill changes. So it, it's, it's a case of the direction of the change and not the size of the change. Right, right. Now, now going back to Richard Dawkins, does he ever give any examples of, of evolution producing more information, more complexity? It, with you know random mutations producing more information or complexity. Well, he was he was once stumped on that very issue, and that's a quite a well-known video clip. And it really was as as the video clip uh, looked, he could not answer that question of where the new information came from. And even the the examples he now gives, uh, like uh, uh, bacteria that can digest uh, citrate, which they couldn't before. But it turns out they always had the ability to digest citrate, but most of the time that ability was turned off because it would waste resources to do that and it's turned on only if in an absence of oxygen um, because if you've got oxygen you may as well use, do something else for energy no point wasting citrate which is low efficiency but uh, what happened with these new bacteria is that control switch got damaged and the citrate eating was turned on perpetually now that means that if there was nothing else to eat besides citrate, it would these bacteria would thrive. But again, it's still a downhill change. It's not a new ability. It's actually a loss of of the um, the switch that normally turns off that thing. So imagine um, your car if you had a car alarm. Now if you had a switch uh, that only turned on when the car was disturbed, well that's the way it should be. But what if the switch was on was was broken and the alarm sounded continuously? Well, it might actually keep burglars away but it still would be a horrible car to drive if you couldn't turn that nose <laughs> off. This is what's actually happened. It's like an alarm switch that, hasn't, that can't be turned off. Uh, interesting. And so is that, okay, that's one example, supposedly, and really it's it's a loss of information. Exactly. Yeah. Is, is that the best he has? That is, that's a, he spends a lot of time on that one. A lot of other, other evolutionists have spent a lot of time on that particular example, which in fact, that's one of the best they have, and it turned out not to be an increase. Interesting. Well, is there any others that they might bring to the table? Well, I, I can give you one, even if they don't, anyone, no one else does. I mean, uh, for instance, flightless birds and insects are often regarded as new information. And the other one might be uh, antibiotic resistance, which he talked about. Oh, yeah. Okay, now the thing is, uh, again, in some cases, you see, a, a, a germ might have a pump 
that um, brings in stuff from outside, which is how the germ eats its food, is he brings the stuff into the cell to digest. Um, and if there's a, an antibiotic, well, the antibiotic gets pumped in, so the cell pumps in its own executioner and, and dies. Now, if there was something to disable that pump somehow, it's no longer working as well, but then it doesn't pump in the antibiotic, well, the germ survives. Hmm. It's still disabled, and that germ could not win a fight with the other germs in the wild, except in the hospital environment. Without the antibiotic, the germ has a damaged cell wall, so it can't survive. That damaged cell pump, so it can't survive in competition with the germs that have fully operational pumps. So in the case of it's a downhill change, but it happens to provide uh, resistance to the antibiotic. That's a very well-known example, um, and that applies to just about all the, the examples of antibiotic resistance. When you look at it closely, they turn out to be downhill changes still. Hmm. And, and yeah, exactly. And so th- this whole idea of evolution where it's a random mutation happens mm-hmm. and then it is acted upon by natural selection. Mm-hmm. Natural selection weeds out the the organisms that supposedly are less fit to pass on their genes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Dawkins also has this weasel program that he wrote that supposedly uh, illustrates uh, evolution, molecules right. to man, this uphill gaining of information. What in the world was that, and and how did it fail to really produce oh, any solid evidence? That's very that's a very old one. Now the point about that is to show the uh, cumulative power of natural selection. You see, he says, well, we couldn't get all this complexity all at once, but if we have a little bit of complexity uh, being selected for, um, we might be able to get this complexity in very tiny steps over millions of years and the weasel program is meant to speed up the thing you've got a random letter and you've got a program that randomizes but every time one of the letters is right it fixes that letter and then goes on with the rest of them so you're fixing one letter at a time and reaching the, the desired goal quite quickly. And now where that goes wrong, though, it it's, uh, um, requires an incredibly powerful natural selection that this letter's right, it's selected from there on, uh, and everything else is gone, you see. No, natural selection doesn't work that perfectly. It works very imperfectly. Mm. So, so he proposed, presupposes very strong selection, selective pro, um, processes. And the other thing, the smaller the advantage, the weaker selection is. These proposed right. natural selection is incredibly strong all the way through, but the, the, the smaller the change, um, the weaker it is, and below a threshold, natural selection that cannot even operate because there are too many random uh, things going on to to swamp the effective selection. So it, his method doesn't work. And also, of course, um, the phrase, me thinks it's like a weasel, let's say 26 letters, uh, we have 3 billion letters in our genome, okay, that's why I said three gigabytes as a, as a ballpark. Now, we could not have that sort of randomization going on in our genome because we, we'd be a mutated mess, you see. So um, it has to presuppose things which are totally unrealistic to real life. Right, right. And, and you touched on something there that uh, I really got a kick out of in the mm-hmm. book. And it's something I've never heard before is, uh, yeah, these mutations, they can't be large if you know because large mutations well it's very difficult to have these r- very large mutations mm-hmm. but they can't be they need to be really small but then if they're really small they're not going to get selected can you elaborate on that a little bit 
Well, yes, it's sort of a bit of a, a, a bind that evolutionists have. I mean, because, and in fact, that's the debate between natu- uh, gradualistic and, and the punctuated type of evolution, but uh, both of them fail for the reasons you just mentioned. It, it, it's it's um, a problem for uh, for both sides. And and you mentioned in the book, too, or actually I've heard, mm-hmm. that mutations are usually harmful. Yes. Well, the thing is they're random, you see, and the point is that even Dawkins puts it quite quite well, is there are far more ways of being worse than being better. I mean, I'm sure your readers here uh, who have kids, you don't have to tell your kids to mess up their rooms, right? <laughs> it happens automatically. Uh, you have to come tidy up. And basically the reason is there are far more ways of having a messy room than having a tidy room. And when you've got a, a very finely tuned um, machine like the cell, or actually uh, multiple machines and, and, and information and, and highways, um, it's far more likely that, that something, if you change something there, it's going to make it worse and rather than make it better. Right. And... and, and yeah. And, and, and so, also along those same lines, then most of the mutations are negative. They're they're bad. They negatively affect. And so, doesn't that then also suggest that over time our genome should be getting worse and worse? And that is a real problem, which was discovered in the last say ten years about how every gen- every generation of humans adds about a hundred new mutations. And most of them are small mutations, are very small uh, and almost neutral, but still downhill. So you see these very these small downhill mutations are accumulating in the human genome, and you have evolutionists saying, why have we not become extinct? Because if we've been around for as long as evolutionists say, this, this mutation alone should have made us extinct by now. <laughs> and yet you clearly right. have, and that seems to be evidence that we haven't been around as long as I think we have. Right, and it seems to me like we are getting worse and worse. I mean, we have characters in the Bible that lived for quite some time, many years, yeah. hundreds of years. Exactly. And, uh, well, yeah, so anyway. And, of course, that, also, that fits in with the uh, the flood model and the genetics, that you have this huge population bottleneck at the flood going from millions of people down to eight people. So you're losing loads of gene- genes doing that. And you're getting a, a much more inbreeding going on with a reduced population, and therefore it's going to cause this catastrophic decay of uh, of fitness, which is reflected in the lifespan curve. You see, the lifespan decay is an exponential decay. You can look at the numbers and plot it for yourself, and that's just what we'd predict um, of a population going through that horrendous bottleneck. Hmm. Hmm. The science is catching up with the Bible here. Exactly. Um, Another thing you brought up in chapter four, evolution before very eyes. Mm. Um, (laughs) Richard Dawkins, he brings up this, this uh, experiment by Lenski. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's working with E. coli. Yes. And, uh, and that actually shows deterioration more than anything. Well, that's the, that's the citrate I talked about earlier. That was one of his big things, and that was almost the highlight of the of the whole Lenski experiment. It's been going on for decades now. And actually, interesting, Lenski abandoned it for a while, went to computer programs because it wasn't getting anywhere, even though bacteria, of course, have incredibly fast generation times. So you've got many thousand generations in this experiment of his, 
and they weren't doing anything. Then, then I mean, it came in the news again because of this uh, this new ability to eat citrate, but uh, eat citrate, which had not been there before. And I explained that earlier. That's right, and that's why that sounded very familiar. Okay, uh, so <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. and uh, okay, you mentioned this earlier too, but I, I'm really curious about this antibiotic resistance. Yep. That's something that's always been thrown in my face mm. as an evidence for upward evolution mm-hmm. and increasing complexity. Why isn't it? Well, I explained one one one, re, one mechanism of that, and that was the uh, disabling of a cell pump can confer antibiotic resistance. That's, that's one example where it's clearly a downhill change that happens to confer resistance. Another example is um, some germs um, manufacture the antidote to the antibiotic, like penicillin can be destroyed by an enzyme called penicillinase, um, now again, it's uh, the, the the manufacture of this enzyme is is under control because why waste resources on this enzyme you don't need? Now, if that control switch is broken again, then the cell can overproduce penicillinase, and that happens to be good if you're being swamped with penicillin. Uh, but again, it's no good in the wild because uh, it's wasting resources on this, this enzyme that's not needed in the wild. You see, so here again, it's a disabling of a control mechanism that <clears throat> confers resistance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, again, it's just that downward evolution. It's, it's a loss and not a gain. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what what about this? Um, Richard Dawkins also one of the, the the ways that he believes that natural selection takes place is through sexual selection. Yeah. Uh, what what is that? And uh, you know why why is that not really the case? Well, okay, sexual selection is something which is not necessarily um, something creation is supposed. I mean, creation is sort of natural selection before Darwin did. So it's not natural selection itself is not a problem. It's actually Again, it's a culling force and not a creative force. It's, it's taking out stuff. Now, sexual selection goes um, as, as one subset where, in fact, it's mate's choice that determines uh, what genes get passed on. Because only, obviously, only something with who can find a mate can pass on as genes. So, therefore, the what gets passed on is controlled by by preferences. Uh, by partner preferences, and uh, see Darwin invented this theory to explain the the peacock tail. Why would a peacock evolve such a huge, unwieldy tail, which gets in the way, slows it down, and he later he proposed that maybe uh, the peahens just like the pretty tail, and just make <laughs> the, the peacock with the prettiest tail. But it turns out the peahens I don't care about the tail; they care about more about the mating call and 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 the tail they couldn't care less about. Huh. Yes, yeah, so the vaccine that Darwin invented sexual selection for, it actually fails miserably. But I'm not saying sexual selection is always wrong. I'm just saying it actually fails for what Darwin wanted it for. Right, right. And it, it might work somewhat yep. uh, to an extent with mankind, mm-hmm. but it doesn't re- – I mean, yeah, sometimes it works with, with the, the animal kingdom, but not so much. I mean – so, also, okay. Even the thing is, again, it makes a blunder. Okay, you might explain the transmission of these features by sexual selection, but it doesn't explain how they got there in the first place. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. All right. What about? Okay. Yeah. A lot is made about homologous structures. Right. 
first of all, what is a homologous structure? Well, a homologous structure means that it has the same sort of underlying uh, pattern or design, uh, but used for quite different things. And examples of, for instance, like uh, a lot of... Um, Land creatures, the vertebrates have a five-digit limb pattern. You've got five digits, then you have two bones and the forearm or the leg or the, or the, or the shin, and then you have uh, one bone which is like the uh, the upper arm or the thigh, uh, and that pattern is repeated for things like the the flipper of the whale, the the wing of a bird. So they're used for different things, but have the same underlying pattern behind it. That's meant to be homology. Okay, and so because you have different organisms that have somewhat sim similar uh, structures on them, whether it's an arm or, or a fin or whatever, and they look the same, then that suggests that somehow they're related, some kind of common descent? That is the argument that uh, that they we inherited. Uh, it was a common ancestor to all of us that had the same five digit in the two um Four limb and then the one uh, upper limb, well, uh, front limb and the, uh, and the and the back of the limb is is, is the same sort of thing. Um, the problem is um, that they have to be quite selective about what they do. There's nothing to say that a, a designer couldn't have used uh, the same sort of pattern over and over again because in most cultures, apart from our west uh, modern Western one. It was considered honourable for a designer to use the same patterns in different applications. That would have brought great honour and made everyone think what a clever designer he was that he could do that. That that repetition of of um, pattern with different applications. Uh, and yet, uh, and now you have evolutionists uh, saying this is a proof of common ancestry instead of proof of common design, which is what I think it is. And then you look at the way these things develop. Sometimes these common structures do not come from common genes, and yet if it from a common ancestor would have to pass on common genes to code for uh, these uh, structures, yet they're not made from common genes. So I think you've got a problem there. And then they don't seem to develop in the same way from the embryo. And now again, if if, um, if it comes from a common embryonic development and producing this common pattern, then we, we expect them to develop from the same parts of the embryo, and often they do not. Huh. So, okay, so the problems for the evolutionary side. Okay, so all right, so we have these structures that look the same; they're homologous, and uh, it's supposed to be proof of some kind of common descent, yes. that they're related somehow, Right. but we don't see anything in the genes that suggests that one came from the other. Yeah. We don't see anything from embryonic development right. uh, that might suggest that one came from the other. Yeah. Is that all that, I mean... Oh is that all they have to... Well, that's um, a very um, common thing. Dawkins had a whole chapter explaining homology, uh, but then you think of things where, uh, in fact, the evolutionists have to discount homology. And one came out actually after my book was written, and you, for instance, echolocation in bats and in dolphins is is an amazing design, and there are certain subtle differences, but then it turns out the genes are also quite similar, and yet uh, they couldn't possibly have come from a common ancestor because if, if you look at the dolphins and the, and the bats, if you trace them back, they trace back to non-echolocating um, ancestors, if you believe the evolutionary story. So you've got um, non-echolocating um, ancestors way, way back, 
and yet somehow they've managed to evolve echolocation and even about 200 genes have evolved in the same way for both these creatures, but evolved independently. Huh. You and, and you even... If they were closely related, you say, well, obviously these common genes with a common, uh, um, the, the common uh, feature of these common 200 genes and evolving the same sort of structure, it must be a common ancestor. But that, that expression cannot possibly work for bats and dolphins, so they have to say they evolved independently. And the odds of that are, are astronomical. Well, exactly. The thing is, if creationists said that uh, that a, a designer made these things independently, well, they'd say, well, of course, if it's got a common uh, pattern, it must have a common answer. Don't you creationists see this? You're closed-minded. But here's an example from their own side where it can't be explained this way. So why should we accept it for anything else? Exactly. And, and even in your book, you also brought up the, the uh, compound I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Right. It's found in, in many different organisms, but there seems to be no relationship between them, so that they must have evolved simultaneously. Well, yes. I mean, the term invertebrates is a very uh, unfortunate term because it really is defining things by what they don't have. They don't have a backbone instead of defining by what they do have. You see, so it's not a real um, practical term. It's just a term of convenience. So you've got all these things called invertebrates, which are quite different from each other, and they all have common this compound eye structure which apparently must have independently evolved 40 times and since I wrote my book in fact we've found an incredibly complicated compound eye in a creature called Anomalocaris uh, meant to be half a billion years old and it has a sophisticated compound eye you know the supposed primitive um, creature from the Cambrian and it's got this amazingly complex eye more complex than just about anything ever, ever on earth with, with, with thousands of facets in it, you see, and this is supposed to be half a billion years old, and they've got these incredible complex eyes right at the beginning of, uh, of multicellular life, supposedly. And this is after I wrote my book, so the things I could have included if I'd, if, if I'd known about them. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And, and so we've got these homologous structures, and that's the whole idea of, uh, well, okay, we've got all these charts, these, uh, uh, what do you call them, cladograms, yes where you know one animal supposedly evolved from another and they they have this this ordered fashion of you know well from goo to zoo or from goo to you via the zoo uh these types of things and uh but yet we've got these massive gaps in between each of these different organisms right these missing links. Yes. What does Dawkins do with the missing links? I mean, does he have any favorites where he's like, hey, look, these are the missing links? Because uh, mm -hmm. it seems to me like there should be billions of them. I mean, we should just see all kinds, like just a mosh pit exactly. of different types of organisms, freaks, monsters. I mean, y you name it, really. Well, that's the thing. Darwin asked why we don't find these uh, missing links, and he had to say uh, it was the imperfection of a geological record. So it's an argument from silence, but uh, it's not evidential because what's the evidence for imperfection of the record? We don't find the missing links, and that's used as an ex explanation for why we don't find the missing links. So it's sort of um, inventing evidence for its own um, inadequacies. Uh, but we know the fossil record far more now, and it's actually very complete when it when it's um, in terms of things we have now. So we know existed. They, the fossil record is very complete, and so the only thing it lacks is the transitional forms. But of course, Dawkins brings up a few of the um, the recent ones, like the Tiktaalik, um, uh, 
of a supposed transition between fish and land creature. But again, there are too many things wrong with that, and it seems to be in the wrong place anyway because they've found footprints which they date millions of years before Tiktaalik, but yet Tiktaalik was supposed to be the ancestor of all um, land-walking creatures. So how could it be footprints of a land-walking creature before its ancestor came along? Millions of years. <laughs> so Tiktaalik is one of his favorite examples, and yet it fails miserably because of these footprint discoveries. Wow. Right, right. What about Archaeopteryx? Well, again, you see, when you look at the uh, things it has, you see, I mean, it has some weird things like a tail, but it also has uh, a fully formed flight feather. It has elliptical wing like a pigeon today. It has the unique type of bird lung that reptiles don't have with the uh, flow-through structures. And it has uh, the bird-like brain and eyes. And it has a perching foot, so it, it's got, it is a bird, it's just a very weird sort of bird. But then we find it's many millions of years older than the supposed feathered dinosaur ancestors that came from. You see, that's the usual theory now that we can, that birds come from feathered dinosaurs, but the Archaeopteryx is older than those things. And so is Confucius Ornus, which is a bird with a beak, and yet again, that's older than the supposed feather dinosaurs, given the evolutionary dating methods I'm talking about here. Missing link fail. <laughs> Very much so, every one of them. And the thing is, it's important not to say there aren't any transition forms, but it looks just to say that Darwin uh, predicted innumerable transition forms, and all they can find are a few debatable handful of examples, which can be, which are very debatable. Yes, yes, and you know, again, it just seems to me like if this has been going for millions and millions of years, and all of these random mutations. We, rather than seeing fixed species, in my opinion, I, I kind of think we should be seeing, I mean, just all kinds of different species, all kinds of different mm -hmm. uh, uh, variations or mutations, and our fossil records should just be loaded mm -hmm. with mutants everywhere, mutants, well, yeah. and, uh, you know. So and we don't see that. I mean, no. everything seems to be fully formed and within its own kind. That's exactly oh. what it is. I mean, the, the uh, first dinosaur, the dinosaur, the first bat, I think I mentioned in the book, it's got the echolocating apparatus. So it's, it's not only a fully-fledged flying creature, but it's a fully-fledged echolo echolocating creature as well. It, it, I, I guess another thing, yeah. and another thing that stumps me is if you do have a mutation yeah. and you introduce that mutated, now you know better-off, organism mm -hmm. back to its family and friends and he decides to try and reproduce chances are he's probably going to i mean he's going to end up right back with his kids are going to end up basically mm. like their grandparents uh pretty much actually i mean those mutations just kind of fizzle right back out a lot of times well, that's the thing. Uh, that, that's uh, just, just by chance. The the, the the nice mutation may well die out just by chance. Hmm. That's that's just one more thing that kind of gets in the way. Um, it, it, you know, I guess I guess I didn't really plan on going here, and <laughs> you don't really have to comment if you don't have much to say on this. Okay. But <clears throat> one of the things that I've always wondered too is uh, symmetry. Mm -hmm. Why do we see so much beauty and symmetry in nature if its random mutations shouldn't 
that not be the rule, but the exception? Shouldn't we see a whole lot of, you know, organisms with eyes that are not balanced mm. and arms that are in weird places? And I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Well, I find that that might be a little bit dubious because, in fact, I've, I've, I'm a chemist, and my specialty was uh, uh, spectroscopy, and, and molecular symmetry is a big part of that. And the thing oh, is, really? Um, see, symmetrical things actually have less information because you specify one <sighs> side, and then there's a copy reflects it or rotates oh. it. You see? So, in fact, symmetrical things are actually a low information. They're beautiful, but they've actually got low information to specify that. I mean, if I want to have a, a, a snowflake, I, I need to specify one sixth of it, and then say rotated six. You see, and I've got the um, this beautiful sixfold uh, snowflake, but I only had to have the information once and repeat six times. So I think um, genetically, that symmetry is a very efficient. Uh, design feature uh, that the gene says one thing and then says reflect that for the other. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a very efficient design, and I could I could I could see evolution saying, well, yes, um, natural selection would also favour this efficient way of of uh, putting a body together, and also symmetrical. Birds are going to fly better because if it has one wing bigger than another, it's not going to fly very well. Oh, very true. Why, you think so? So that a natural selection would eliminate um, non-symmetrical things. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Okay. That's that's okay. just something that I've always wondered about. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, another chapter that uh, you jump into that is always a fun one mm-hmm. is well, actually, it's two real chapters about one on. Uh, is the earth ancient? Mm-hmm. And then there's another one on, uh, well, just arguments for a young earth. Right. Uh, what, what does Dawkins say? As far, of course he thinks the earth is old, mm-hmm. but what is his best arguments for an old earth? Well, probably radioactive dating, I would say. Uh, that's the key one that most people think of is, is radioactive dating. You've got long-lived uh, isotopes and you use the isotopes to measure age. So, that's why I had it in two chapters. One was to refute the usual old Earth arguments, including radiometric dating. And the other chapter was uh, to try to sort of give some positive evidence for a much younger Earth. That's why I split it into two, into two chapters. And so what are your favorite evidences for a younger Earth? Well, I think the ones that come out quite recently, and my two favorites would probably be radiocarbon in... in uh, in diamonds and, and other supposedly ancient and, uh, things like coal and, and even dinosaur bones because di- radiocarbon decays extremely quickly. So if we have a million years, uh, you can start off with the, the Earth being nothing but carbon-14. In a million years, we shouldn't be able to find any. It should have decayed. Okay, so we're finding carbon-14 in things like diamonds. And by the way, diamond is a type of carbon, and it's the hardest substance on Earth. And therefore, it's, it's, it's impervious to contamination. Nothing can get in or out of the diamond crystal. So if you have carbon-14 in that diamond, it was there when the diamond formed. So um, the fact that it hasn't decayed shows the diamonds are not a billion years old as they claim, but in fact less than a million years old. So that's one important thing, greater carbon in, in things like diamonds. Another thing is the soft tissue and DNA found in dinosaur bones. And dinosaurs are meant to have died out 65 million years ago. Uh, and yet we're finding the di- DNA in it. Um, well, not me. I'm telling you, Mary Schweitzer did it. Um, but she did three independent tests of DNA, found it in the dinosaur bones, and the tests show that the DNA must be quite intact, must be double helical. There's a lot of it there still. 
But then we can do measurements on the decay rate of DNA, and we can find, okay, cool it down to, say, minus 5 Celsius, which is 23 Fahrenheit, um, and you preserve it in bone. It will last about 7 million years, and it's completely fragmented, okay? So it's one-tenth of the assumed dinosaur age, and DNA is totally fragmented. You'll be finding DNA that's totally, is very intact in the dinosaur bones, and dinosaurs were meant to have lived in warm climates where DNA is even less stable. It might last a few thousand years at most, you see. So finding protein, DNA, um, soft tissue, blood cells, blood vessels in dino bone is, again, very good evidence that can't be more than a few thousand years old. Mm, very good. Very good. People don't know so, about that, you see. Right, right. It, it, I had a, uh, a guest on a few months back, mm -hmm. and we talked about dinosaurs for two podcasts straight. And um, yeah, fascinating, absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating. And I think that's a very good evidence. Um, I've heard some objections. Now I can't remember what any of them are, yeah. uh, but I, I remember hearing a few objections that didn't seem to hold any water right. uh, about how these these uh, soft tissues could somehow be preserved for millions of years yeah uh, are you aware of any yeah of i will be very, i've written on them before yeah so the, the injections really don't hold water and don't seem to apply for the dna i mean at best they might apply for the proteins but i think they're incredibly unconvincing anyway like um uh pickling in very concentrated iron solution but where are you going to get that when you've got water leaching things out see blood is dilute in iron and and things with a lot of blood vessels are often the first to rot you see uh, lungs uh -oh. and stuff so so again um it can only be preserved if you concentrated the iron from blood in artificial concentration and then okay we've preserved some ostrich blood vessels for two years well yeah two years is not quite 65 million years is it okay <laughs> Um, only a, six orders and seven orders of magnitude too low there. So uh, forgive me for being unconvinced about it. And the other thing about the evidence I gave you, it takes the evidence that evolutionists think are on their side. Evolutionists think dinosaurs, they think millions of years. They think carbon-14 dating oh, proves millions of years. And, and you show that both of their favorite things actually support the biblical timescale and oppose the evolutionary timescale. That's quite a shock. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay, mm -hmm. great book, great well, thank book. You. And and you know, friends, I would highly suggest you pick this one up. Yeah, it was written in 2010, but uh, I'd, I'd say for the most part, it's just as relevant today. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to hear Richard Dawkins? Uh, get his. <laughs> this is your book. Um, also, uh, so so Dr. John, tell me about this new book that you co-authored you're part of this achilles heel of evolution yeah um and and also there's a dvd there's an e-book okay this is a, see the e-book the the the, uh, the book is a nine phd scientists writing in their own field about serious weaknesses of evolution so we have a geneticist writing about how genetics undermines evolution i'm a chemist so I wrote about the origin of first life from non-living chemicals, how that's a problem for evolution. We had a nuclear physicist writing about radioactive dating. Uh, a physicist cosmologist wrote about uh, the problems with the Big Bang Theory. Uh, we have a biologist talking about, about the problems that natural selection uh, poses for evolution. So these, these nine PhDs in their own field, and at the end of the book, explains what evolution does to faith and morality as well how it's a it's been a disaster when it comes to try to build 
right and wrong from evolution. It, it, it produces horrific things like Nazi Germany when that happens. And the, the DVD is a nine different, is a nine very distinct parts with bullet points at the end of the part. That's got 15 PhD scientists contributing to that DVD. And we do talk a little bit outside. Uh, it just, I mean, for instance, I've talked in that DVD about the origin of life, my own area, but I contributed a little bit to the uh, cosmology, to the um, right, to dating, and to the morality sort of part of the uh, DVD as well. So we, we sort of talk a bit more freely in that DVD, but it's still uh, quite structured, and, and they go well together, those two, the book and the DVD. Well, I, I have both the book and the DVD, so I will be talking about that in a future podcast. Nice. I haven't dug into either of them yet, but I, I, I definitely plan to. How have those the book and the DVD been received? Well, I mean, just recently, in the last month or so, um, the DVD was at a Christian film uh, uh, festival and won the prize for second best documentary at that Christian film festival. Oh, wow. Yes, obviously people are receiving it uh, nicely, so yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I also heard that uh, you have a commentary yes. on Genesis, uh, Genesis one through eleven. Correct. Tell me about that. Well, we haven't. Uh, we've, I haven't had a commentary on Genesis from a young Earth scientific um, viewpoint for some time. Dr. Morris wrote a very good one called the Genesis Record, but it's over forty years old, so older than a lot of your listeners. Uh, and science <laughs> moved on there. But I also wanted to show, uh, really analyze the Hebrew text very deeply. I wanted to show how the Greek uh, text, uh, um, um, the Septuagint uh, says things, but maybe the Hebrew text, but also how the New Testament authors re uh, understand Genesis because, I mean, they were Jews and, of course, inspired by God. So what Jesus thought about it and what Paul thought about it, what Luke thought are actually very important, and they all treated the the time frame, the people, the events, and even the order, the sequence of events was important to the New Testament writers, and also to show how all the basic doctrines of Christianity have their origins in the early chapters of Genesis. So it's an exegetical commentary, um, but also showing the applications for the New Testament, application for Christian theology, as well as defending it uh, from a historical and scientific aspect as well. Now, is that out? Yes, it is. It just came out last week. Uh, what, what is it uh, titled? The title is The Genesis Account. Okay. And it's an 800-page commentary, and it's only about $35. So that's cheaper than most commentaries, and it's 800 pages worth. All right. Well, I will I will certainly be picking that one up. Well, thank you. Um, that'll, that'll tie up some time. I'm so wide too, I can tell you. Oh, fantastic. That's something you can bring to a youth group as well, uh, something that you can use as you're, you're teaching through Genesis 1 through 11. For gives all those people out there that are... Give to your pastor, give right. to your seminary student, because it's got enough for, for pastors and seminarians could, could easily find that helpful. It's written for that, oh. that in mind, too. Yeah, I... Uh, uh, from time to time get the opportunity to teach expositionally through books Good. Uh, at church for Wednesday nights. Right. And, uh, yep, yeah, I can see that happening. I can see that happening. <laughs> so awesome. Well, hey, Dr. John, thank you so much for your time. This has been a whirlwind. It's, it's gone fast and lots of good information. Thank you again. Well, thank you to your very good interview. You're very well informed on the topic, uh, which is really good to see. Thank you for, for, for that. 
Okay, again, that was Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, uh, Creation Ministries International. I hope to have him on again someday. Uh, he's just got so much good content to share. Uh, friends, I apologize. I haven't been able to post uh, in, gosh, it's been about a week and a half, almost two weeks. I'm just getting rolled. Uh, I've been uh, teaching uh, uh services at the church that I attend for the last couple weeks straight. I'm going to be doing it for two more weeks to come. In between that and work, I've, I've just been just getting ruled in life here. So I apologize. Uh, I'm going to get right back at it. I'm hoping and planning to post another podcast on uh, Tuesday with Chris Leslie. This one is going to be very different from the typical podcast that I've been releasing. Uh, in this podcast, we're going to be talking about giants. That's right. The Old Testament talks about giants uh, on the earth. And when you look around the earth right now, in the fossil record, you find giants. You find giants in all species, uh, you find giant horses, giant rats, giant everything, uh, giant insects, giant plants. Uh, everything seemed to be really big in the past. What does that mean? Uh, and how does that affect uh, this theory that everything is evolving and getting bigger and better. <laughs> so we're going to be talking to Chris Leslie. Again, this is going to be a very different podcast. Uh, and so uh, looking forward to that. And with that, well, I love you guys. And we'll talk to you in just a few days.